If you would, open up your Bibles to uh, the beginning of the book of Acts. We're going to pick up today where we left off last week. We started a series through the beginning of the book of Acts, looking at uh, the church that changes the world. How can we be a church much like the New Testament church that took the world and flipped it upside down? Um, and last week we looked at the beginning of Acts in chapter 1 in that passage um, where Jesus ascended to heaven and he told them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we studied last week how our mission is to reach all people with the gospel and our timeline is now. We must do it now because it's the only time we have promised is here and today. We, we learned that our method is per, as our personal witness, that we are simply to tell people what Jesus has done in our lives and who this Jesus is that we worship, and that the power we have comes through the Holy Spirit. And so we receive that power in Acts 1.8. It says that because of that power, we will then become Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But today I want us to think about this question. What do we know about this Holy Spirit? What do we know about this power that the Lord has promised us? And what I want us to consider is, are we really truly using the power, utilizing the power that the Lord has given us through the person of His Holy Spirit who dwells within us? I remember um, back when I first came to Fisherville back in 2009 as a youth pastor, I remember that one of the first things we did with the youth is we had a fellowship at our house one night after church, had all the kids over and it was a house full of kids and their parents and some of their siblings were running around and we had a good time uh, that night. And I remember um, that in one of the bedrooms we had set up our little Nintendo Wii, you know, which is like one of the little video, video game systems with the projector on the wall and the kids were in there playing and they were going all over the house. Uh, well, the party got over, um, all the kids went home, all the parents went home and everything got real quiet in the house and Kim and I decided to go and start cleaning up the house and kind of restoring what had been destroyed from the fact that 30 to 40 teenagers were running through the house. And we got to one of our extra bedrooms and we opened the door and there was one of the fourth grade kids who had tagged along with their sibling for the night. Um, and, and I looked at her and I, and I won't give her name to embarrass her parents, but I looked at her and I said, hey, what, what are you doing here? And she looked and, I, and I, I said, hey, your family's already gone. And, and her words were, not again. <laughs> And sure enough, about that time, the car pulls back in the driveway of their parents and they come running in and they'd gotten halfway down through 85 on their way back toward Fisherville where they live and they realized they had forgotten their child yet again. <laughs> you know, there's a sense in which for us as Southern Baptists, I believe we have forgotten the Holy Spirit. I have thought long and hard about this over the past several weeks and especially this past week as I've studied the Word of God and considered the Holy Spirit and His role in our lives that I think, I think we've forgotten Him. I'm not sure if it's that we're afraid of the excess that maybe we see in the charismatic movements and groups like that. I'm not sure if, if we're afraid of ghosts, in a sense. You know, it used to be that the Holy Spirit was called the Holy Ghost. We don't hear that anymore. Um, but we, I think we've just forgotten them. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, The idea of the Spirit held by the average church member is so vague as to be nearly non-existent. We don't talk about the Spirit much. We talk about the Father a lot. We envision the Father sitting on the throne, as it says in the book of Isaiah. We talk about the Son a lot. 
We, we consider his life and his ministry and his teachings. We, we, we celebrate his death and his resurrection and the salvation that it comes. We do that a lot, but we don't talk about the Spirit much. I'm not sure there's something of a mystery to us as Baptists, but if we don't understand who the Holy Spirit is, then how can we really and truly make use of the power that He gives us? If we don't look for the Spirit, if we don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit in our lives, how are we going to know His voice? And how are we going to follow His lead? Today I want us to look at Acts chapter 2. So if you'll turn there. In Acts chapter 2, we read of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they had waited for 10 days. And the Bible tells us in that time between what we read last week in Acts 1 and Acts 2, they were in the upper room, they were praying much, they were studying Scripture, considering what was to come. And after 10 days, God unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit upon his church. And let's read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are are, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and the residents in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. <clears throat> we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked them, said, and saying, they were filled with new wine. In those verses, there are three phrases I want us to study today and consider today that I think give us a clue about the Holy Spirit's identity. Give us a clue about His role in our lives and the power that we have in Him. The first thing I want to say this morning is that the Spirit of God breathes life into us. He breathes life into us. It said back in verse 2 that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I'm guessing that many of you were awoken yesterday morning, quite early in the morning, at the sound of thunder and lightning and, and, and the rain on the roof and then the tornado sirens and all that. I mean, if you slept through that, man, you are... You're doing pretty good. I sure could not sleep through it. Amazingly, my boys did. Thank the Lord for that. Um, But my wife and I woke up, and she turned on the news and um, began to watch the weather and stuff to make sure that that we were not in the path of a tornado. But you could not avoid hearing that sound. Especially if you had already been awake, you could not avoid hearing the sound of that rain. 
um, Kim makes fun of me a lot because she says that, um, that I'm, I'm especially attuned to hearing noises. Um, she said, I, it's not, not, doesn't, not a day goes by that, I, that I'm not in my car or in something and I'll begin to hear something and I'll get this look on my face and she'll say, what is it, boy? What is it, boy? You know, as if I'm a dog hearing these little noises. And I think I got it on us because I got it from my dad. He was the one that taught me how to hear little bitty sounds. Um, every time we would go on road trips as a kid, um, back in the day, we used to have like this cargo van that my dad turned into a conversion van. And, uh, and he would always hear a sound of something rattling in his toolbox in the back of his van. And, and I'm not sure if it was just to keep us occupied or if he really heard a sound, but we would have to climb to the back of the van and dig through his toolbox and rearrange things until the noise went away. There was always a sound we noticed. We, we pay attention to sounds, and here there was a very distinct sound. This was not some little sound. Uh, this was not something to be missed. It said it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. In the Greek, it's the word pneuma, where we get our word pneumatic. And it's translated throughout the New Testament as spirit. His breath and his wind at different times. In the Old Testament, it's a word called ruah. And it's the word that we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, The Spirit of God, the ruah of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. That was a creation. That the Spirit, the wind, he moved as a wind, it seemed. You know, and that mention of a mighty rushing wind reminds me of another time in Genesis chapter 2 where we read of a very powerful wind, a life-changing wind. In, Jesus, in Genesis 2-7, it says that the Lord God, when He was making Adam, it said He formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, when you think about creation and the story of creation, you'll notice that everything God created, He spoke into existence, except for man. When it came to man, He got His hands dirty. He physically got involved, and it says he took the dust of the ground and he formed man. He took the rib from Adam and formed Eve, and he breathed the breath of life into their nostrils. That breath of God brought physical life to man. And just as in Genesis, the breath of God brought physical life into Adam and into Eve, so the Holy Spirit of God brings spiritual life. He breathes spiritual life into us. At salvation, the breath of God, the Spirit of God comes into your heart and soul and brings what was once dead, Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sin, brings what was once dead to life. And you were born again, John chapter 3 verse 5 says, in the power of the Spirit. At that very moment of salvation, you were indwelt by the Spirit of God. You don't have to wait on a second baptism. You don't have to wait on a second coming of the Spirit. At the very moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit of God takes residence within your heart. And He makes what was once dead fully alive. What was once deader than deader than dead, He makes fully alive unto God. But once He has made you alive, His work has only begun. It's not over. It's really only begun. Look at verse 3. There's another picture there that I think we need to pay attention to. It says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Number one, the Spirit breathes life into us. Number two, the Spirit empowers us. He empowers us. We saw that passage last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We just read it a moment ago that the Spirit of God would come into us and He would bring power 
into your life. That was that word dynamis, dunamis in the Greek, which is where we get our word dynamite. And we talked about how last week, how the Spirit of God does not enter quietly. He comes in like dynamite and he ignites our lives. He brings power into our lives. And in this instance, it was very clear. The Spirit of God came into them and miraculously, the disciples were empowered to tell others about Jesus in a, in a very different way. They began to speak other languages and other tongues, it says. And they were declaring that Jesus was the Son of God and the one way to salvation. The crowds there on that day, it says they were from all the nations under heaven. They would have been gathered there for Pentecost. And those crowds rushed out and began to wonder, how can these backwoods hill hillbillies from Galilee speak my language? And all of them were hearing their own language. And there was only one explanation for what was going on, the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It's all that could be said. You know, when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, and He comes with a purpose, and He comes with power. You know, not long before Christ's crucifixion, He was gathered with His disciples, and He was teaching them the last things He felt He needed to teach them before He would be crucified <coughs> and return to heaven. And He told them in that time that He was going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them. And he actually told them that it was going to be better for them and for us if he would be crucified and go to heaven and be able to send the Spirit in his place. He said it would be an improvement. It would be a benefit to them. He calls the Holy Spirit his helper. We sang that in, in one of the songs earlier. You might have seen that word paraclete and wonder where that came from. That's Greek in, in John chapter 14, verse 26. It's the Greek word there for helper. It says 14:26. it says the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You want to know what the Holy Spirit does for you? Let me tell you. First of all, he speaks to us on behalf of the Father and the Son. Jesus said there in John 14, 26, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. When the Spirit of God comes to live within you, he is coming there so that he can speak God's will into your life in the name of the Son. You know, I've, I've had people tell me before, um, God told me this or God told me that. Um, and I'll have to admit, there are times when I'm kind of skeptical when they say that, because sometimes people will use that as a way of saying, you can't argue with what I'm about to do. Um, but here's how you can know. If you sense that God is speaking to you, here's how you can always know if it is God or if it is not. If it is true, the Holy Spirit, or if it is not. The Holy Spirit will always confirm the Word of God in your heart and never contradict it. That if you are sensing that the Holy Spirit is telling you to do something, the first question you ought to ask is, is this in line with the Word of God? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking on behalf of the Father and the Son. He is coming from the Father in the name of the Son. We also know that the Holy Spirit enables us to understand the Word of God. It says there He will teach you all things. Do you realize that without the Holy Spirit, you would not be able to understand the Bible? It would not make any spiritual sense to you. It might not make any, any moral sense to you if it were not for the Holy Spirit. It's why you can go to a lost person and you can show them the Bible and they will declare it's foolishness. But we know it's the power and wisdom of God because the Holy Spirit has inspired us and moved us so that we can understand it. 
And we also know from this verse that the Holy Spirit prepares us to live in obedience. He says that he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit in those times when you have decisions and dilemmas in front of you that will bring the word of God and the principles of God to your life so that you can know what God's will is. He brings it to your remembrance so that you can live according to God's word. He convicts you when you begin to wander into sin and temptation. But Jesus also says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Spirit would come to empower us to do His work. Luke 12, 12, for instance, tells us that the Spirit gives us words to speak when we don't know what to say in defending our faith. And in Romans and 1 Corinthians, it says that the Spirit pours out spiritual gifts upon us for the purpose of God's ministry. The Spirit's role is to fully equip you to do whatever God calls you to do. And God will never call you to do something that the Spirit has not equipped you to do. If God ever directs you to do anything, it will always be something that the Spirit has enabled you, empowered you, equipped you to do. It's what we see here in Acts 2. The Spirit falls on these disciples. They begin to witness Peter then preaches, and 3,000 people came to the Lord for salvation. 3,000 people. That is the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, can you imagine that service? I mean, sometimes we complain if we sing four verses of a hymn. Can you imagine how long that invitation song would have been? 3,000 people. The same Spirit of God lives within us. And His role has not changed. He comes to speak to us on behalf of the Son. He still enables us to understand the Word. He still guides us to live in obedience, convicts us when we wander into sin. And He still empowers us to carry out His mission to bring the the world to Christ. That is the Spirit's job. That is His role in our lives. But I want to stop right here for just a second. And I want us to think about this. What about this whole tongues thing? What about this whole speaking in tongues? I mean, is the Bible telling us that if we have the Holy Spirit that we're going to speak in some unknown language? I mean, should we jump onto the charismatic bandwagon and all the churches that practice speaking in tongues? In Acts chapter (laughs) 2, what we see here, the gift of tongues has a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to make the gospel known to the lost. That was the role. That was the purpose there. Look in verse 6. It says, At this sound of the multitude came together, that mighty rushing wind. They begin to speak in all those languages. And they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? language. In the coming verses, it begins to list all the different regions from which these people were from. And in verse 12, they they were amazed. They're perplexed. It says, what does this mean? Now remember, it's Pentecost. Pentecost was was generally the most well-attended feast of the Jewish year. It It was the one feast where more people would come because it was the prime season of the year to travel. They were more likely to come to this than the Passover because the weather was better. And so there were Jews there from all over the Roman Empire, Jews who were, who were born and raised in those different regions of the Roman Empire. They didn't speak Hebrew. 
They didn't know those languages. Their heart languages were different. The language they had learned from their childhood were different. But yet all of them heard their own language proclaiming the gospel. There's three other instances in Acts where we read of the Holy Spirit arriving for the first time on different groups. In Acts chapter 8, it's the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, it's the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 19, it's Old Testament saints who weren't there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's believers in Ephesus. There were Jews there. And each time the Holy Spirit falls on those groups, those groups, they don't begin to speak in another language. They don't begin to do what Acts 2, you know, they didn't do that. But they began to declare that Christ is Lord. They began to witness to those around. Now, there are other times in the New Testament when Paul writes about the gift of tongues in such a way that some people could interpret it as a special prayer language. But I think, I really do think what Paul is intending when he writes that stuff is what we see in Acts 2. Instances in which the power of the Holy Spirit enables people to speak in another language for the purpose of sharing the gospel. I believe that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's talking about a prayer language that's a private thing that only you and God can understand. I believe he's talking about an evangelism language. I had professors in seminary. Dr. Wilkes was one of them in America, and he talked about experiencing that, being there and watching that happen and knowing missionaries in which that happened, in which they were speaking in one language, but yet a tribe who had never heard the gospel would hear it in their own language. That's the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I believe that is this. Our God is a God of clarity. He is a God of understanding, and He's not a God of confusion. And even when you read of Paul talking about tongues in his letters, he always says, if someone's going to speak in a tongue, there has to be an interpreter. There has to be someone to make understanding out of what can be in confusion. And so if someone can interpret it, what does that mean? It's not a secret language. It means that the person is given the power of the Spirit to speak and someone is hearing it in their language and therefore they can interpret it. And so ultimately, let me just say this. If you want to pray for the gift of tongues, pray for a tongue that shares the gospel. That's what we ought to pray for. Don't pray for a private prayer language that's between you and God, only a benefit to you, because I don't really, I'm not really sure that's real. Pray for a tongue that speaks the gospel in a way that the, the lost understand it. That's what we ought to be praying for, that we would live in the power of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit would drive us to be His witnesses. But here's the thing. The Spirit breathes life into us. He empowers us. But you know what? That doesn't always guarantee that we're going to live in His power. Third thing we need to look in this passage for is that the Spirit fills us. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. It says this. It says, They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled. This, this, this tongue as a fire fell on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, we are never in Scripture told to pursue the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because God does that on His own. He sends the Spirit to indwell us. We don't have to ask for that. We are never told to pursue a baptism of the Holy Spirit because God does that on His own at our salvation. But we are commanded in Scripture to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And from a negative perspective, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we're told, do not quench 
the Holy Spirit. Or the New Living Translation says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so as a believer, I have 100% of the Holy Spirit living within me. I can't get any more of the Holy Spirit than what is already there. He is fully 100% there. You know, we hear people say all the time, man, you got to give 110%. You realize that's impossible? All you can give is 100%. And the Lord has already given you 100% of the Holy Spirit. You can't get more and you will never have less of the Spirit living within you. But even though I have the Holy Spirit living within me, that does not always guarantee that I will live fully in the power of the Holy Spirit. It does not guarantee that I'm always living as one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, let's think back to Ephesians 5.18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean to be filled? I think what it means is to live under the Spirit's control. If you think about the comparison here, and I think Paul uses this comparison, but I think it could be applied to a lot of different things. I think what he's implying here is that when you are drunk with wine or drunk with any kind of alcoholic beverage, you are giving over control of your mind and your will and your emotions and your actions to the alcohol. Are you not? Isn't that true? That if someone becomes drunk, they, they become under the control of the alcoholic beverage. And so he's saying, don't be controlled by that. Instead, be filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You could say the same thing with anything. Do not be controlled by a desire for a promotion at work. Do not be controlled by the possessions you own. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a believer, I have the Holy Spirit living within me, but it does not always mean I'm living in full surrender to Him. At times, we begin to want to control our own lives. We begin to grow selfish. We begin to want more things. We begin to want promotions and possessions and praise. And we begin to want to take control back. And in those moments, I'm not living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It says there, be filled with the Spirit. It's passive. In other words, what this means, it's not something I do as much as it is that I'm surrendering my life to the Spirit. How do we live in, full, in the fullness of the Spirit? By every single moment of the day, surrendering the will of my life to the Lord and saying, God, whatever you do, wherever you send me, whatever you say, that is what I'm going to do. That is how I'm going to live. As I thought and I prayed through that this past week, really a couple weeks, um, it made me stop and really think about my life. And, and, and ask myself this question, am I living in the fullness of the Spirit every day? Or have somehow, have, has my life grieved the Holy Spirit? Have I quenched the Holy Spirit in my life? Have I failed to listen for His voice? Have I failed to surrender my life to His will? I mean, when was the last time, this is a, a question for you to think about on your own. When was the last time that you had an instance when you can, without a shadow of a doubt, say that you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm talking about when was the last time that you felt His direction, that you sensed His hand upon you, that, that you watched Him move, that you saw something take place in which you could only explain it by saying that was the Holy Spirit who did that. When was the last time? As I sat and thought about that, 
I began to wonder, man, have I, am I doing something on a regular basis that is silencing the Spirit in my life? It's funny how when you begin to think about things like that, the Lord will put stuff in your life to really make you think about it even more. And that, that's what happened the past couple of weeks. I told you last week I've been uh, listening to a, an audiobook by a guy named Nick Rick Ripkin. He's a missionary. And it's a book called The Insanity of God. And it's a book in which he, he travels the world and is interviewing Christians who lived in persecution and asking them about their experiences. And over and over in that book, he talks about how these people would say, and the Spirit directed me to do this, and the Spirit led me to do this, and the Spirit spoke to me in, in this. And, and I read those things, and I, and I was a little skeptical because I thought, man, it just seems like the Spirit is talking to these people an awful lot. This just seems kind of interesting. Why is that? And there's a part of me that was a little skeptical, and there was a part of me that said, man, this sounds, this sounds really like, man, this is, I wish God would do that in my life. And then he told this one story. And hopefully I'll tell this story correctly. But he told this one story about a time whenever he was traveling around and he was doing different interviews and he had been invited by a doctor to go into this Muslim country. It was a closed country. It was a country where believers could not live in the open. And this doctor had contacted him and said, Dr. Ripken, you need to come to my, my country. I would love to, to, to take you to some people, let you interview some people, believers who are living in persecution. They could really help you in training others how to live in persecution. He turned the invitation down several times because it was an extremely closed country. And it was a part of the world he wasn't in at the moment. And he said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And, and the Lord began to shut doors to which Dr. Ripken said, I, I've got to go. Okay, I, I'm going to go make this trip. And so he flies into this country. Um, he lands at the airport. He walks out the door at the airport. And he sees the doctor right there. He, he can tell this is the guy um, that he's supposed to meet. And right next to this doctor are five Muslim men standing next to a van. And uh, he walks up to the doctor, says hello. And the doctor says, Dr. Ripken, do you know these men right here? And he says, well, no. Do you, do you know them? And the, doc, the guy says, no. And he says, well, Dr. Ripken, they know you, and they're looking for you. And so Nick Ripken said immediately he began, became fearful. He thought that he had been set up. These guys were coming to arrest him, to attack him, to, to kill him. And so he turns, and he begins to go back into the airport, and these five Muslim men begin to follow him into the airport. And they're right behind him, and they begin to pull on his clothes. And he's trying to get back in the airport so he can buy a ticket and fly out of the country and get away from there. And the men grab his clothes, and they say, Mr. Ripken, we're, we're believers. We're Christians. And he stops. No one knew he was supposed to be there but that doctor. No one had any clue that he was going to be in that country except for that one man. And he stops, and he listens to him, And they, he goes to, some, to a hotel with them, and he goes in the room. And the men begin to explain how all five of these men had been Muslims, and each one of these men had had a dream, had dreams in which, in which a man would appear to them and, and would tell, him, tell them, find Jesus and you will find peace. And those Muslims began to pursue Jesus. They began to, to they, one by one, they, they found either a copy of the Bible or they found a believer and they came to salvation in the Lord. And then one by one, these men began to find each other and they began to meet under the cover of darkness, for fear of persecution and death, they were meeting from 12 a.m. until 3 a.m. every day to discuss the Bible and to talk about how to live out their faith. And one night, the Holy Spirit spoke to those men and said, go to the airport and approach the first white man who walks out of the, out of the first plane that lands that day, and he will teach you how to live in persecution. And so they went. And the first man to walk out of the airport that day was Nick Ripken. 
Now, like I said, the only person that knew he was going to be there was the doctor. But yet the Holy Spirit placed them there and ensured that they would meet each other so that he could teach them how to live under persecution. They told Nick Ripkin, they said, we know how to be Muslims in a Muslim country, but we do not know how to be Christians in a Muslim country. Teach us how to live out our faith. How can you explain that except through the power of the Holy Spirit? I know someone in here is probably thinking, that's too good to be true. I'm sure he probably just made up that story. That can't be real. Why can't it be real? Why can't God do that? We look at the words of Scripture and we see that God healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He raised His own Son. He enabled the disciples to speak in foreign languages they did not know so people could come to know Christ. And if He can do to all that we read in Scripture, why can't He appear to five converted Muslims and direct them to an airport? He can. I'm afraid... For many, we read those kind of things, we hear those kind of things, and we say, that's too mystical. That's, that's, that's impossible. The Spirit doesn't, He doesn't work like that anymore. But why not? I'm afraid for us as good Baptists, we've domesticated the faith. We've demystified the faith. We've despiritualized the faith. We've stopped looking for the miraculous. We've stopped looking for the supernatural. We've become kind of like the Sadducees who believed in the Word of God, but believed in nothing spiritual. There was nothing beyond this life. that They didn't see it. We've intellectualized the faith. We've, uh, we've, we've, over, oh, we've made it too, too um, factual, and we've stopped seeking the experience. We've become just like the Jewish men in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. Look back there. What happened? They hear this scene, or they see this scene. They hear these men speaking in this foreign language, and what did they say? It says they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they're filled with new wine. There were some who saw the work of God and immediately said, that's the work of God. But there were others who said, no, 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 no. They're just drunk. This is all fake. No, there's no way. Somehow in the process, I think we've stopped expecting the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We've stopped seeking it. We've stopped believing. We've forgotten His voice. We've stopped searching for it. And when we begin to believe that, do you know what? We've grieved the Holy Spirit. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. We've stopped living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You see, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit lives within you. He's there 100%. There can be no less. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can stop living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you can never lose the Holy Spirit. He is there, waiting for you to listen, waiting for you to respond. And how can you ever live in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit as promised in Scripture if you fail to listen for His voice. Would you pray with me? Father God, oh God, how we want to hear Your Spirit. We want to know Your voice. We want to seek Your will. Know Your ways. Father, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do all that. But I admit in my own life, I've stopped listening for the Holy Spirit. 
So many times I've simply ignored the Holy Spirit. I've thought, oh, that's just crazy what that feeling in my heart is to go do this, to go speak to that person, to go give that. Uh, I, I would be in those situations and think, oh, that's crazy. I can't do that. I don't have time for that. And I've stopped living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Father, I come to confess that to you today. And on behalf of this church, I pray that we would be a people who lives in your power every day. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who needs to make a decision of faith, if someone needs to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and pray to receive salvation today, I pray that you would burden their heart, encourage them to step out of the aisle and come down at this invitation. If there's someone here today who feels like you're directing them to, to join this church, Maybe it's a believer who needs to rededicate their life, who needs to confess their own refusal to listen for the Spirit, to live in the fullness of the Spirit. I pray that you would give those individuals the confidence to make that decision, to make it public. Have your way with us. May we feel your Spirit. May we hear Him and respond with obedience. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing the song of invitation?